Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. Just in terms of brief introduction to my immediate right is Dr. Zaid Ahmed Khan Sahib, who's president of the Kazar Board, the uh, Board for Jurisprudence here in the UK for the Amdiya Muslim community. And to his right is, of course, Maulana Abdul Ghani Jangir Khan Sahib, who's head of the French desk here in the UK. Welcome, gentlemen, to Faith Matters. And we're going to travel to Kenya for our first question. And this comes from Mrs. Alia Maksud. Assalamu alaikum, Maksud Alia Saiba. And thank you very much for your question. She's writing about um, quite a sensitive issue, which is about the tragic uh, reality of sexual offences which take place, particularly against uh, women, and um, particularly issues, you know, tragic circumstances where they find themselves um, in a situation where they've been raped and their dignity has been taken for them, and, you know, the emotional and the physical horrendous uh, circumstances they have to face. And Dr. Saab, if I could start with you on this. This is obviously, it's a very sensitive issue. And Alia Saib is asking that at times a girl finds herself in a circumstance where she's perhaps surrounded by people. And it is quite obvious what their intent is, not just to cause her sexual offense of any kind, but actually to rape her as well. And to protect her own dignity, there are occasions and there's thousands, I'm sure, of examples of this around the world, where the woman comes to a very tragic conclusion that her dignity is so, you know, it's a question of sanctity and protecting her dignity, that the only recourse, the only course of action she has is to take her own life. In that particular circumstance, that extreme circumstance, that exceptional circumstance, should that be deemed a suicide or not? Well, it, as you rightly say, it's <clears throat> such a terrible situation uh, to find oneself in and uh, one cannot begin to imagine as to what goes through the mind of such a person who is in that situation and uh, about to face this, uh, this terrible uh, act perhaps. And the dilemma that must go on in the mind of someone in order to protect her dignity, obviously one has to sympathize with that and to empathize with it and, uh, and take that on, on board. However, as far as Islam is concerned, Islam actually uh, does everything that promotes life. And it speaks of the fact that the life that God has given to us is the domain of God Almighty and it is not our life to take in that respect. So that has also to be borne in mind that this is what Islam does say about life and the sanctity of life and that it does not obviously permit the taking of one's life uh, in, in that respect. But this situation is perhaps something that is beyond the borders of that. However, Islam 
does permit the taking of life, and I am thinking widely in terms of, say, abortion, where the preservation of the higher form of life and the sacrifice of a lower form of life is permitted in that situation. But in a situation as, as this is concerned, then one finds it difficult to actually accept that Islam would permit uh, the uh, committing of suicide, even though it is to protect the dignity which one considers so high in, in that respect. You see, at the end of the day, what we have to understand is that it is for Allah and the judgment rests with Allah alone as to what is going to happen when we are ca called to account for our deeds on, uh, on earth. And because the taking of life is prohibited in Islam in, in this respect, it is felt that God would punish someone who had taken their life in, in this form, in this life. But however, taking into, the, into view the circumstances that may be present at that situation, it is the grace and the mercy of Allah that may encompass one who has actually taken their life. And therefore, Allah may in fact uh, protect them and reward them from the punishments that are to come in the hereafter. So having, having said that, it is such a difficult dilemma and situation to be in. But according to Islamic teaching and according to what life means for man mm -hmm. and being the domain of Allah, we have to actually always say that one is not permitted to take life in that respect as well. It is the protection of Allah that we should always be seeking. And uh, in situations where, where this arise, perhaps we should again be seeking Allah's protection to the last minute and may, maybe that in these situations it is Allah who comes to the help of, of the, these, these people and are protected from what may be about to happen in that respect. Dr. Saab, these tragic victims, and I use the word victims now as in post the event, quite often there's the physical trauma which the woman has to suffer, young girls have to suffer, and then there's the emotional trauma. Sometimes you know, they're beset by guilt. Sometimes they somehow try and blame themselves. Understandably, they'll feel unclean. They'll feel as if life has ended, this, that, and the other. But one of the hopes that should, in terms of the support that's extended, but also Islam is also very protective of the woman's sanctity. And if, if tragically a woman does fall victim to such um, a kind of heinous crime, there are very harsh uh, punishments as well for the perpetrators of these crimes as well. So, number one, perhaps you could just articulate those, but also in the context of this particular issue as well is that, you know, even within Islam, notwithstanding cultural pressures, that Islam certainly doesn't put any guilt on the woman for something which is beyond her control. That's very true, and uh, it's quite sad to, to, you know, to see what's happening today in the Muslim world, where every day you'll, you'll see, you know, news items coming through from different Arab countries or others, other Muslim countries, where the rape victim herself was blamed, Indeed. and she was the one who was put into jail, and she was the one who was punished, and sometimes even put to death, or even, you know, m more horrible. Uh, circumstances in, in some respects where she's forced to marry the rapist and we know of a case recently uh, in one Arab country where a 16 year old girl actually committed suicide because she had been forced to marry her rapist because it was deemed by the judge for God knows what reason 
that uh, because he's had you know relations with her, now he has to be responsible for her. So these are horrendous things which are happening th today, far removed from real Islam, of course. And as you rightly said, in Islam, somebody who would be caught you know, in this kind of a crime would be severely dealt with. Of course, it's left to the judge, according to the circumstances, to decide you know, how to punish. Uh, but Islam, of course, deals with mercy uh, you know, for the victim. And in, indeed, uh, as uh, Dr. Saber said, that the, the, pri the primordial principle in Islam would be to preserve life. So Allah gives one good mes uh, uh, message of or glad tidings, you could say, to a victim who does not try to take their life because they're in this kind of a predicament by saying, and this is in Surah Al-Baqarah, in this verse 196, Allah says, uh, which means, and spend for the cause of Allah and cast not yourselves into ruin with your own hands and do good. Surely Allah loves those who do good. Now there are several meanings to the, to the verse, one of which is that you should spend in the cause of Allah, but you should not keep spending until you fall into ruin, which is financial ruin. But the other uh, sense would be that Allah wants you to spend in His cause, so don't commit suicide. Don't throw yourselves into destruction, because then you will not be able to do that. You will not be able to continue to perfect your soul through spending in His cause. And Allah says that He, he says you should do good deeds. Allah loves those who do good deeds. So if they're patient and they somehow try to survive through this horrendous uh, crime which has been committed against them, Allah will count that as being a good deed and Allah loves such people. But uh, he also says about, about uh, um, uh, sexual relations forced upon women, Allah says, but if anyone forces them against their will, then after their compulsion, Allah will be forgiving and merciful to them. So Allah will show them forgiveness and mercy for whatever they've done in their lives, because they've had to go through this horrendous crime. They've had to be subjected to this. So there are messages of uh, hope and messages of, of uh, you know, glad tidings which are given to those who are the victims of these crimes in Islam. Gentlemen, Jazakallah, clearly a very sensitive subject, but also you know, any woman who's tragically raped, rape is, is rape, as simple as that, it's forced upon her. And I, I think, you know, as has been highlighted, Islam is um, very particular in protecting the sanctity of women. And as Dr. Saab said, ultimately is for Allah Ta'ala, God Almighty, to um, judge and uh, show mercy at all, at all times. Uh, but to uh, Ali Asaiba, thank you for your question. Um, gentlemen, we'll move on to our next question, which comes from Yumna in Mauritius. Um, thank you very much for your uh, kind comments about faith matters as well. Her question is about uh, women who have to miss fasts during the uh, month of Ramadan, the holy month of fasting within Islam, which is one of the five pillars of Islam. And they have to miss fast because understandably of their menstrual period to make up. And then they're asked rather, because they've uh, uh, of missing those fasts, they're asked up to make up those particular fasts of after Ramadan. Is that indeed the case? And she puts it in the context of 
miss namaz for the same reason is not something you have to make up. Yet, certainly she's been informed that if she has missed a fast because of the same reason, then she does need to make it up. Yeah, this subject of <coughs> fasting is dealt with uh, by Allah in the Holy Quran, where the commandment to fasting is given to the Muslims. And uh, we, uh, reading that, we, we know that there are exemptions for some categories of people who are perhaps not able to fast, are too old to fast, are traveling, or are sick, that they do not need to fast on those particular days. But when those conditions are removed, i.e. when they are not traveling or when they have got over their ailment, and the condition, then they should complete the missed number of days. So this commandment, this guideline is categorically given in Surah Baqarah where fasting is discussed. So yes, women who are not able to fast because of their menstrual cycles falling within the month of Ramadan, then they have to complete the number of fasts that they missed during the course of that Ramadan. And that number has to be obviously completed before the next month of Ramadan mm -hmm. arrives in, in the following year. So this is categoric and clearly mentioned in the Holy Quran as far as completing the fast is concerned. You see, fasting is mentioned in the, uh, in, in the Holy Quran and we know from our experiences is such a magical moment in the, in, in, in the, in the year of a Muslim and uh, we see that the, it encroaches upon all aspects of our worship and it is such a transformation that we see around the world that Muslims who go, who go through this period of fasting try to carry out a period of self-reformation. So that is the importance of fasting in that sense and Allah himself has said that there are things that a person tries to do for his own, own self whereas fasting is done specifically for myself, God Almighty says, in order to reach God Almighty and in order to reach nearness to God Almighty, that is the essence of fasting. So keeping the importance of that in mind, those fasts that are missed, then because it is such a meritorious act in that respect and has to be completed before the end, before the coming of the next fast, that those fasts have to be made up. As far as Salat is concerned, one should continue very particular about performing the Salat during the course of the day at its appointed time. So we should not detract away from the aspect of Salat in that respect also that we should make sure that we are very obligatory in our form of worship as far as Salat is concerned. But Salat is over a period of a 24-hour period and therefore we have to continue and complete our Salat in that period of 24 hours in that respect. Dr. Saab, Jazakumullah and my thanks also to Yumna from Mauritius for your question. We're going to travel to Canada to a question from Dr. Muhammad Budan Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sahib. Thank you for your question. Jangir Saab, he's talking about the famous uh, philosopher Socrates. And it's an interesting question that Dr. Saab is putting is that was he just a Greek? philosopher and a, a very eminent Greek philosopher he was indeed. Or is there another mindset that he was in fact a European prophet of God who also had excellent morals? Well, one interesting aspect of this question is that Dr. Budun himself traveled from Mauritius to Canada, just <laughs> as we've done in our questions. <laughs> now, as for Socrates, yes. um, we have to kind of remember a, Quran, a Quranic principle, first of all, 
Allah says that وَإِنْ إِمِّنْ أُمَّةٍ إِلَّا خَلَا فِيهَا نَذِيرٍ which means that there was no people, no ummah, no community to which a warner had not been sent or has not, has not passed through, meaning that it has not visited. So every community has been visited by a warner, a nadir, which is another word for prophet or messenger of God. So we should, of course, then expect to see warners being spoken of in every different community that we encounter around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we do, we do actually see traces of these um, warners. Um, because we know of the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his mission and his words to such a degree of detail, we are in a position to know and recognize the hallmarks of prophethood wherever we encounter them. And of course, after the passage of time, and because of the incrustation of myth, myths and, uh, you know, um, how would I say, you know, these kind of uh, stories and tales which are woven around the, 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 the personae of these, of these uh, great men of the past, sometimes it's difficult to immediately recognize prophets and messengers of God, but there are certain aspects of them which are immediately recognizable, and other aspects which need to be found by delving deeply into their teachings or whatever has been preserved thereof. Keeping in mind that some things may have been written as having come from them, being attributed to them, which might not have been written by them as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, it is a bit of a minefield, but there are certain ways that, which these things can be seen. Now in the case of the Greek philosophers, Socrates stands out in the sense that he does bear some of these hallmarks in, within his person. One of the things that we see him saying often is that he receives messages from on high, which is revelation from God, in other words. Another thing is that he warns the Athenians uh, that if they put him to death, which was their, uh, their wish at, at one point, um, then they would not see another one like him again, unless God willed someone else to come in some remote time in the future. So these are things which are said by prophets. The very fact that they wanted to put him to death also is quite revealing. Because we, as we know, the history of prophets shows us that the people to whom they are sent are bent on putting them to death. And so they warn them against this and warn them of dire consequences. So there are certain aspects such as these which make us believe that Socrates was perhaps one of those prophets sent to the Greek people. This theme has been uh, uh, taken up by the uh, late fourth Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, Rahimahullah, in his uh, uh, magnum opus, uh, which is the Indeed, I, I've which got you have in front of, of you here, yeah, Revelation, Revelation Rationality, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth. Truth. There you go. And you have a whole um, chapter on, uh, on Greek philosophers, including Socrates, and this aspect of his being most likely a prophet in this book, the book Yang Saab is referring to, as he said, this was written by a very revered fourth successor to the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, um, who was a scholar uh, and a respected and revered scholar, not just within the community, but beyond. And this was one of his very extensive pieces of writings. He's written a number of books. And in this, as Jahangir Saab has said, um, the issue of Socrates and indeed others, and the point that Jahangir Saab you've made is a perfectly valid one. We believe prophets were sent to all people and all civilizations. 
And quite often, we often see prophets for uh, talking in terms, uh, geographical terms of the East, but suddenly seems that Europe was missed out. But clearly, um, if we look deeper, and as you said, the hallmarks of prophethood, that, that, that may well not be the case. Just as a, as a point, just to pick up on that and to conclude, if I may, this, the issue of prophethood is an interesting one, but explicitly, does a prophet may well say, I receive uh, you know, revelations from up high in the case of Socrates or from God, as others have said, do they explicitly themselves have to state that I am indeed a prophet or a messenger for them to be deemed or established as a prophet? Well, you see, they may well have said it. And I think that every prophet and every messenger is or ordered by God to actually declare it to the people. Whether that was preserved in their history, though, is another matter. So we see, for example, in India, um, we have Krishna, we have Rama, we have uh, Buddha, uh, may peace be upon them all, whom we, re we regard to be prophets, although in their writings you will not find that clearly stated. But because, as I said, with the passage of time, many things are lost. Many things are, you know, which was originally said were not preserved as well, were perhaps never put into writing. And so therefore we don't have that today. So we have to look for other features of these uh, personages to be able to determine whether they had been sent by God or not. Now one counter argument which I'd, I, I'd like to, to mention here, which might be raised by, by doubters, is that, well, we see things in their words which are not consistent with what we, what we know of the prophets who we do know. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore they aren't prophets. But like I said, many things are attributed to prophets after their death, which were not said by them. So we have to make a careful distinction between what seems to have been said by them, which seems to be real and which seems to be consistent with what other prophets who are better known did say and discard whatever seems to be inconsistent with that. So it's, it's a bit of a job, but for those who, who have studied the lives of the, the prophets who are well known, it would be much easier for them, of course, to be able to, to sift through all the, you know, all that material. Jazakumullah, again, I suppose on this subject we could uh, carry on talking for the whole programme, but for now I think Jazakumullah and Jahangir Saab for your uh, answer there, as ever eloquent and detailed, and my, our thanks of course to Dr. Mudan Saab for his uh, question. Um, our next questioner is Kwasi Dumo from Ghana. Dr. Saab, he's asking how Islam views, as he puts it, the maintenance or the upholding of national values and customs in religious communities. I suppose when we were talking, or we talk about national symbols almost as well, we can talk about flags, we can talk about, I don't know, representation in armed forces as a way of showing patriotism, but those are just a couple of examples that immediately spring to mind. But this issue perhaps that he's getting at is the compatibility of Islamic Islam as a religion vis-a-vis -vis national values and customs. Well, one thing we, is important is that one must never lose sight of their roots. That is important as, as well. So in that sense, we obviously uh, recognize that there are different nations around the world mm -hmm. who were actually one people at one time, and then they were split into tribes and sub-tribes and so, so forth we have different nationalities and different nations around the world. And as far as their customs are concer uh, concerned, then for every nation that those customs 
may be important to retain so that they actually have a handle on the history that they have the, their nation has gone through. Islam, on the other hand, what we have to recognize is that Islam actually transcends all geographic boundaries, all national boundaries, because it is a unifying religion mm -hmm. in that sense that it is, it is universal as far as time is concerned, it is universal as far as geography is concerned. And the most important aspect of Islam is the unity of God. So that is something that we cannot compromise upon. And therefore, in order for a, a different nation still to be counted as a Muslim, they do not have to uh, throw away their, uh, their customs. That, but, the, the, but the most important thing is the recognition of the unity of God Almighty and being a Muslim in that sense. And where that does not conflict with the customs that are present in any nation, then there is no conflict as such. Mm -hmm. Islam does not enforce that customs have to be all, all, all abrogated as, as such. All it is that Islam recognizes the unity of God Almighty, the prophethood of the Holy Prophet as being the last law-bearing prophet. And taking that into account, then we have to obviously include that in whichever nation we are. Islam actually promotes that you should obviously be loyal and faithful to the country that you abide in or the nation that you exist under. So we actually as Muslims have this responsibility or that we uphold the nation under which we live in. At the same time, being a Muslim within that nation, we find that there is no contradiction in that element. But as far as the unity of God is concerned, then there cannot be any compromise in that respect. And Islam does not obviously cause any obstacles to be placed in our midst in that sense at all. If I could just, before we move on, just pick up on one of the points Dr. Sahim said, is this issue of contradiction. It's quite absolutely correct about contradictions, but sometimes contradiction, so much is made of it. If I could personalize it for a moment, you know, someone who, you know, Irish, Mauritian, living in England, influenced by Pakistani culture, you know, and so on and so forth. I'm sure there's certain labels. Forever society is trying to attach labels and then they attach these labels and then try and suggest, perhaps some do certainly, that they should be conflicting. For example, you're Muslim and Islam against the West. What if you're Muslim of the West? <laughs> are you self-conflicted? Yes, I mean, there are some labels within labels. There are subsets within, b bigger subsets within sets. So it's not as clear-cut as you know, some people might think, and not, not so black and white. But there's actually a very interesting verse in the Holy Quran which speaks of all this. And I'd like to, to read it here because it would uh, you know, be very appropriate, I think. It's in Surah Al-Hujurat, which is chapter 49, and it's verse 14. And Allah says, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ إِنَّا خَلَقَنَاكُمْ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ وَأُنْثَى وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلًا لِتَعَارَفُوا إِنَّا أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهِ عَلِيمٌ خَبِيرٌ So it says, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Surely Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. Now basically, if people don't hold on to their national values and their, and their customs, how will they be recognized? Because we have to remember that sometimes there are certain peoples on earth who may look exactly alike to another people, exactly you know, the same. Like let's say for example, the French and the Belgians. Some of them speak French in Belgium. Mm -hmm. They look like the French, but they have 
other values, they have other customs. Arguably, they might have another accent as well, but not necessarily. And so how will they be able to be, to be you know, differentiated from, from those who look so much like them? They're, that is where those customs and national values are going to come into play. Now, an, an interesting thing is that if we want to know how we can determine, and Dr. Saab touched upon this and on the, very, uh, the most salient point, which is the unity of God, which we have to maintain, we can't have anything which touches that in any way. But how will they know, how will people know whether a certain custom is in accord, accordance with what God wishes or not? God says that the most righteous among you uh, will be the one who is, who is uh, regarded with most uh, you know, honor by me. So if a custom lends itself to you being righteous and God-fearing, then it's a good custom. But if it removes you from God, God uh, fear, or the fear of God, and removes you from righteousness, then it should be discarded. It will not be of any use to you. Now, an interesting thing, how Allah ends off the verse here. He says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ خَبِيرٌ Allah is all-knowing and well-aware. So He's saying also, we should copy these, these qualities, these attributes in ourselves with particular reference to this subject, meaning, that we should be well aware and knowing of our own customs and we should also publicize them so that others could know them. And on the other hand, other people should also try their utmost to be well aware and very knowledgeable of the customs of others. Why? Because that label, you know, attaching which you were talking about just now, wouldn't occur in a negative sense, mm -hmm. had the people been more knowledgeable of the customs of those people. So, if you know people as well, it's a, it's a way of breaking the ice. Okay. If you know, if you recognize suddenly by the customs or something of a, of a person you've never met before, that this person, oh, belongs to this country and this tribe, and you start talking about those things about his culture that you do know about, you do know of, immediately the person warms to you, and bridges are immediately built, and a, and a human contact is established. So there, are, there is a lot of benefit in actually not only knowing one's cultural values and customs, but in promoting them, and also, on the other hand, of learn, in learning them for others. Because it will facilitate the recognition of peoples among themselves, but also facilitate human contact. And everything will be made you know, easy for everybody. And then it won't, it won't matter whether you have several labels and you're going around with several labels like I have to do, which is perhaps my bane in certain circumstances, <laughs> but an advantage in others. If people knew you know, better about all these different labels, then it would be so much easier for everybody, wouldn't it? Zakamullah, uh, I think you're a living example of uh, cultural diversity <laughs> and, uh, with religious unity. So, Jazakumullah uh, Jangir Saab and Dr. Saab for your answers. And my thanks, of course, to Kwasi uh, for um, your question. We're travelling back to Canada to Javeria Munir. Assalamu alaikum, Javeria, for her question. Um, a simple question, but a big question, I would sum it up as Dr. Saab. Does the Quran mention modern discoveries? Will you give examples? I mean, we could be here <laughs> not just for this programme, but for many programmes after as well, if we listed everything. But if you could pick up on the Absolutely. specific question. Absolutely. I mean, the Holy Quran mentions uh, prophecies about the present day and about the future like no other revealed book has in the past. And I think in, the, in, in programs past also we have discussed 
cosmology I think is, is one aspect that is actually described by the Holy Quran in very much great detail and we have we, we know about the Big Bang Theory mm -hmm. that is now accepted as perhaps the start of the creation and the Holy Quran actually cons uh, details, in details gives the creation of the universe as that, that there was a closed up mass uh, and then it was rent asunder so the Big, big Bang, the black hole that existed uh, is, is something that, that we know about um, and then there'll be the following on from that scientists are now talking about a collapsing universe into a white hole and black hole again and the Holy Quran has spoken of that and how the heavens will be rolled up again so these are just uh, on that aspect the Quran men mentions these then we have the uh, expanding universe theory until Hubble came out with his telescope it was felt that there was not an expanding universe but it had a limit on it however the Holy Quran mentions that we go on expanding this universe and, and that again fits accurately and exactly into what science uh, has, has dealt with then there I mean there are so many and I may not be able to actually give examples of that but one thing that comes to my mind is about uh, chloroplasts, chloroplasts if we go back to our biology days we know about how plants photosynthesize from the green cells that are present mm -hmm. present in them that through sunlight and through the uh, uh, carbon dioxide that they are able to photosynthesize and produce chemical energy the actual wording of the Holy Quran green, green, green clusters is mentioned in reference to that and this has only been, out, uh, been discovered in the late 1800s by, by scientists so we have a whole host of cosmology, science, which is discussed by the Holy Quran in great detail. Then there are some, uh, other discoveries that are the pulsating stars. They, they are mentioned by the Holy Quran in that respect as well. So it is something that a Muslim actually should be investigating and trying to understand how science is now beginning to prove what the Holy Quran predicted 1400 years ago when the world actually was not aware of this let alone the desert of Arabia and a person who was not could, could not read or write so this is the uh, actual proof of the truth of the Holy Prophet who was given this book in which all these discoveries are mentioned and which have, which have been now proved to be true and actually it's not a limited thing but it continues to be dealt with and science continues to prove that these these were true discoveries. Jazakumullah. Young Hisab is coming on and developing this question slightly further. I mean one of the criticisms which is sometimes levied against books of all faith including the Holy Quran is oh it was a book for a particular time at a particular you know a time in in life or at a particular time in, in as the world evolved yet as Dr. Saab's already highlighted there are contained within the Holy Quran discoveries which as yet humankind is yet to discover themselves. Yes, that's very true and uh, that's one of the, the reasons why we believe God exists because as Dr. Saab has just said, how can an Ill illiterate person mm -hmm. of uh, 7th century Arabia know of such truths that the universe is expanding, that there are black holes, that the universe started in a closed up mass, etc. These are not things which can come to the mind you know, and, and how can he get it right every single time as well? 
So these are questions which must be asked by people who are searching for God or who are agnostic but are open to proof that God exists. This very knowledge coming to a person which is far beyond the ken of man, even beyond the ken of man a few hundred years ago, even a few decades ago, should you know, deserve to be explored further so that you know, something could be ascertained from, from all that. But not only discoveries are, are mentioned in the Holy Quran, I mean, we've, we've, we've spoken about things which are already there, but which weren't known by man. God also speaks of things which would be invented as well. And there are, for example, there are so many examples here again. One is that where Allah speaks of um, God having created horses and mules and, and donkeys for people to ride upon. And Allah says, and the, He will create other things that you don't know yet of the same type. So they will be, you know, things that you will ride on, but you don't know of them yet. Then He speaks, for example, uh, He says, and His are the lofty ships that float on the, on the sea like mountains. Whereas at the time of the Prophet Muhammad there weren't any enormous ships like the ones we know nowadays. You know, these cruiser ships, etc., etc. Um, and they're like proper mountains moving, you know, with all their food and all their whatever water and everything that they need, you know, with people living on them as if they were on dry land. So this is also mentioned in the Quran. Now I'd like to leave one very interesting thing with, uh, with our viewers here. There was also a discovery which is yet to be made, but which has which uh, is now uh, you know, attracting the attention of, of science quite a bit. And it is the detection of life, and in particular intelligent life, beyond the confines of earth. Mm -hmm. Now this was also predicted by the Holy Quran. And the actual verse, I'll just get the reference of it, is Surah uh, Ashura, which was, it means the consultation, which is perhaps itself quite interesting that maybe it will have something to do with us consul consulting yes, other creatures out there. It's chapter 42 verse 30 and Allah says in this, He says, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا بَثَّ فِيهِمَا مِنْ دَابَّةِ وَهُوَ عَلَى جَمْعِهِمْ إِذَا يَشَاءُ قَدِيرٌ And among His signs, meaning this is going to be a sign for you to know that God exists and God is true, is the creation of the heavens and the earth as we've already seen, which is itself quite you know, marvelous and miraculous the way it's described in the Quran, and of whatever living creatures he has spread forth in both, both the heavens and the earth. And he has the power to gather them together when he pleases. So we are going to meet in some way, and it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So watch this space. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure Javeria, I was about to say, you know, I'm sure she's looking up to the skies as, as we speak. Jazakallah, Jahangir Saab, Dr. Sahib. I, I'm also minded by the fact that um, in the modern age, the greatest uh, uh, eminent and Muslim scientist, indeed Nobel laureate, Dr. Abdul Salam Sahib, often said that when he, in his discoveries, when he hit a brick wall, it was to the Holy Quran he looked to find the answer and he said never was there an occasion where he, that wasn't the case, that he never found. Yeah, he always found the answer in the Holy Quran. Javeria, Jazakumullah for your question and um, do write in again uh, in terms of discoveries as and when uh, they are made. Um, we're going to go to come home rather for our next question, which is Abdul Rashid Saab from London. He enjoys the program. Thank you, Rashid Saab, for that. He says, can you call someone, this is his question, who loves his own race, a racist? Dr. Sahib. 
Well, I suppose the simple definition of a racist, perhaps, is one who considers his race to be superior to other races, and therefore he discriminates or he's prejudiced in his view about race. So that is something, certainly, that we cannot say that that person could be called a racist if he loves his race. He could be a loyalist, a nationalist in that respect. You see, superiority in, in, in terms of race is something that Islam actually condemns. And the whole life of the Holy Prophet and up to the farewell address that he addressed the Muslims before his demise, he talked about this very important subject of superiority. And he said that no one person is more superior in the sight of Allah to the other. An Arab is not superior to a non-Arab and a black person is not superior to a white person. So in that respect, he actually highlighted this aspect very categorically. And in practical terms, we know that when Muslims pray, they stand shoulder to shoulder, and a prince may be standing next to a pauper, and uh, an educated man next to an illiterate man, an Arab next to a non-Arab man. And this is how we are seen in the sight of Allah, is that we are all equal in that respect as far as Allah is concerned. So all races are on an equal footing as that, that is concerned. However, what does differentiate us in the sight of Allah, and I think Jahangir Sahib alluded to that only shortly, is the aspect of righteousness. So that only those people are considered superior who are more righteous in the sight of Allah, and that does not limit it to race, color, or creed, or nation in that respect. Jazakumullah. Just before we move on, Jahangir Sahib, on this, of course, Dr. Sahib talked about perceiving your own race as superior, but equally coupled with that is telling others that their race is inferior. And in, again, in the modern example of that, there was no better example than Adolf Hitler, who had the Aryan race. Ironically, he, the race he perceived to be superior, he himself didn't resemble that, but that's a, <laughs> I'm, I'm, a side to the whole thing. But I think the issue, to be quite clear, racism is something which Islam certainly doesn't entertain. But to be proud of your origins, as we were talking earlier in the program about culture and you know, where you come from, who you are and your identity is something to be proud of. But in no way should that be seen as being raising yourself at, at a level which you believe you're superior to a, a another being. Absolutely. And I think that awareness of uh, racism is growing mm -hmm. in modern times, definitely. And many efforts are being made to eradicate it. But unfortunately, it seems to be one of those things that dies hard. And it always rears its ugly head once given half a chance to do so. And this is particularly the case um, in, in, in uh, international relations. So we see that uh, the, the latent racism, which has been covered by a veneer of civilization and, and modernity, uh, which just a, f a few decades ago was, uh, you know, was showing itself you know, with all its ugliness, which now is hidden, can very easily come back to the surface just given a little impetus in any way you know, or form, whether it's economic or political or, or what have you. So there's a lot of work to be done still, and therefore the Islamic teaching is vital to get people to recognize that at the end of the day, the only thing which is worth being honorable for is being God-fearing mm -hmm. and most righteous and best in one's behavior. This is the only honorable thing and this has nothing to do with race because an African person can be just as, as God-fearing as a Chinese person can 
as much as a European person can, as much as an Aboriginal person in Australia can. There's absolutely no differentiation on that level at all. So people really need this Islamic teaching, hence our preaching you know, of this uh, um, teaching all over the world. Because we as Ahmadi Muslims truly and sincerely believe that as long as the world doesn't come to accept the principles of Islam, whether they become Muslim or not is another issue. But as long as they don't accept these, these golden principles of Islam, they will not be able to eradicate the ills which are eating into their societies, whether at home or you know, on, the, on the larger level, you know, in their international relations as well. So it's very important for them to reflect upon and learn about these principles as much as they can. Gentlemen, just as a final point on that, I suppose, Dr. Saab, we've seen the passing away of Nelson Mandela, and he was a very good example of someone who was subjected in the modern political context. Apartheid was this despicable regime which was prevalent in South Africa, yet taking the issue, Jahangir Saab, of the principles of faith, which he perhaps demonstrated in his own, whatever, whatever one thought of, you know, him as an individual, many rightly had a very high regard for him. He showed that once he had the power, once he was in the driving seat, that he showed not resentment towards those who subjected such evil towards him, but he held out an arm of friendship, including the, the very president who released him, mm. who used to govern over him whilst he was a prisoner, became his right hand and vice president in F.W. de Klerk. And that was a living example of someone who demonstrated that very poignant example. Yeah, these are very golden principles and these characteristics and they are not limited actually to, as you said, to any particular faith and these are acts of decency and good nature that we find throughout the world and Nelson Mandela had these uh, in abundance and he showed this through his actual example. Not often do we actually see that a person will actually put this into practice as far as that is concerned. Um, but that actually reminded us of what happened 1400 years ago as well. The Holy Prophet wasallam. we know that he was himself subjected to all forms of torture and torment while he lived in Mecca as were his, his followers mm -hmm. and they had to migrate from there uh, and, and live in another country. But when he came back victorious to Mecca again we see as to what his example was of forgiveness there is no, there's going to be no accountability on you on this day that you are free to go. So this is exactly what the Holy Prophet himself did in his lifetime and actually demonstrated that when he was victorious, when he was powerful, that he forgave all, all his uh, enemies at that time. So these are actions that we do see around the world um, which are human decency nature and this is what Jahangir Sahib was talking about, about the principles of Islam, about the principles of religion, principles of all religion being, uh, being peaceful at their inception. And Islam continues to teach that. Unfortunately, unfortunately, today in our present day, we see that this is not the picture of Islam we see in many parts of the world, unfortunately, mm -hmm. which may be related to a minority of people who actually take over the press and media and, and, and portray it as this is the picture of Islam, an erroneous picture of Islam that many people tend to attach to. This is not Islam. We should look at the life of the Holy Prophet and find out what true Islam is. 
in this day and age, we have the Imam of the age, the deputy of the Holy Prophet who has once again demonstrated that this is pristine Islam and we should always recognize and portray and try to propagate that this is true Islam of the Holy Prophet Indeed, just to end on that, picking up about the example of noble Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, with the Medina Declaration, it was perhaps then still recognized. Often I draw people's attention to it. What, you know, people talk of bills, you know, of human rights and uh, bills of rights. Um, it was an incredible example mm. of exactly encapsulating um, and affording protections, rights to all people irrespective of their faith or background. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah uh, for your answers on that. Um, we're <coughs> returning. We've talked about um, technologies and uh, other sort of philosophies. We're now going to talk about time travel, John Yusuf. And uh, Muhammad Ahmed Saab, right here from the UK, has said, are there any Islamic teachings in this respect? Does no. <laughs> there aren't. There, there we have a complete and comprehensive well, answer. Hazrat Khalifa Rabbi who spoke about this, the fourth Khalifa, um, he said that had time travel been possible, then we would have been seeing and meeting people from other time frames, you know, today. Mm -hmm. And we're not. You know, that would have been on the 10 o'clock news had we been doing so. So he said the very fact that we aren't meeting anybody you know, from other, other uh, you know, eras, whether past or future, clearly indicates that time travel is not possible. So that's the, you know, remains in the domain of uh, dreams and, and uh, unfulfilled hopes. Jazakumullah, <laughs> <laughs> and my thanks also to Mohammed Ahmed Saab for your question. And the next question comes from Talat Rahman in Germany. Assalamu alaikum. Um, Dr. Saab, the question being asked here is, is it true, uh, our questioner asks, that the names of people given to them and the food they eat affect their own personal disposition? Is there any relation between the name and the person named and the food and the one who eats it? Well, I suppose there are two, two aspects to, to this, aren't there? One is, one is that of names. And we know that uh, in, in Islam, um, the names that are given to, to, to our children uh, ha are meaningful names and often they are related to the attributes of God Almighty himself or to the names that have um, been met with other prophets for instance. So when uh, we, we name our children in that respect we pray and hope that they will actually um, do justice to the, to the name that they have been given and will give that importance and will attach, try to attach to the importance of that name through the attribute of God in trying to attain and come close to that attribute and, and significance that is in our life. So yes, names can be important because the child may grow up knowing that he has been named again, uh, 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 he has been named according to this attribute of God Almighty so that he should actually mold his life that he's seen to be something that is in close communion with God Almighty. As far as food is concerned, that is an interesting question as well because we know that uh, there are many conferences of physiologists who have actually accepted the fact that you are what you eat now, they say. Absolutely. Aren't I mean, that's they? something, that's something that time. is now yeah. being accepted at last, that there is obviously something that uh, the food that you eat does have a relationship of, of the characteristics that you are endowed with. So in that respect, we should always be very careful of what we eat and uh, keeping within that role we should make sure that uh, our characteristics are always of a pure nature. 
Hazrat Masih Ahmad, the promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, actually wrote in the teachings of Islam, did he not, that actually there is a, a, there is a close link to the food that we eat and how it affects us. And he talked on various, uh, various types of food which can affect the pe person and his characteristics in that respect. So that definitely is a link as far as food is concerned and we should always be careful as, as to what our diets are. Yes, there was one thing I'd like to add about yeah. names and it is that in general, of course, um, giving a child a name is not going to have uh, necessarily an influence on him to the degree that the name means this or the name means that. Mm -hmm. But of course, like Dr. Saab said, that the person who has a name will try to emulate that name and become, you know, what it, what, what it is, an embodiment of, the, of its meaning. However, there are certain names which are also prophecies. They have prophecies attached to them. When, for example, the Holy Prophet Muhammad was called Muhammad, nobody knew that name before him. So he was a person who was called that. It was chosen by his, uh, his grandfather. And uh, it was a prophecy that he was going to be a person who would be praised greatly, because that's the meaning of the name. Similarly, we see in the case of the Prophet that he was the first person in his entire family in the entire family history to have received the name Ghulam Ahmad. And it so happens that this was also a prophecy to show that he would be a servant of Ahmad, the one who came before him. But also, as he said, God had revealed to him on one occasion that his, his uh, name with his, the, you know, th there's a kind of an epithet which is, which is uh, linked to the place of birth in, in Muslim, uh, you know, custom. And uh, so if you're, if you're born in Mecca, you're called Makki. And if you're born in, uh, in uh, Qadian, you're called Qadiani. So he, he was told by Allah that his name, Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani, if you count the numerical values of all the letters that make up that name, um, they will amount to 1,300, which is the case. And that was itself a prophecy. Because the Prophet Muhammad had said, just for, as a reminder, that there would be... Three, um, three centuries which would be good after him and after that there would be a thousand years of darkness mm -hmm. and after that there would be the, the you know like the, the renaissance you could say this is uh, understood from his from different prophecies of his so the, the figure 1300 was actually in his name so as a sign for those who are looking you know searching for, tr for truth so there is sometimes more in a name than, than meets the eye gentlemen for that um I, we've got a couple of minutes left uh, dr Saab, and i'm going to just raise a question with a uh, and request you to give a brief answer but nevertheless an important one. Uh, we were asked by uh wahid amansal from toronto that does freedom mean doing whatever someone happens to want to do or should real freedom and be understood in a slightly different way what does freedom mean? Well, you've put me on the spot and I'm going to answer the question in that sense as well by giving a very brief answer. Uh, but I, to me, that is a striking answer. The, whole, the promised Messiah was asked about this by people as to what can we do, what can we not do. And he gave a beautiful answer. He said, do everything but fear God. Mm -hmm. So keeping that in mind, we, ha we have freedom as far as that is concerned. But always we should understand what are the limits that are prescribed by Allah as far as what our actions are concerned upon this earth. So we do have freedom. A man is free to do what he wills. But if you look at the overall picture and we want to be successful in the eternal life, 
then we have to abide by the limits that have been prescribed by Allah. So the promised Messiah is saying, do, do, do everything, but fear God, I think, encapsulates the whole essence of both freedom and the limits that have been prescribed by Allah. So that is the way we should live our life. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.